Welcome to Still Unbelievable, a podcast by Reason Press, where we examine religious claims, especially those made by Christians, and we regularly respond to items that are featured on the podcast, Unbelievable. We embrace dialogue, but as sceptical former believers, we will also criticise unfounded claims and unsupported beliefs. everybody welcome to another episode of still unbelievable this time we're trying something different it's your usual hosts andrew and matthew and with us joining in the background is david from skeptics and seekers a voice that should be familiar to most of you hello david welcome back on again nice to have you howdy thanks howdy. now we may or may not hear much from you you're here as an honorary guest because we're talking about something that we're all interested in so if we need to hear from you we'll certainly be hearing from you as we talk about this but mostly this is going to be Andrew and myself talking about a video that some of you would have seen some of you will have spent a lot of time thinking about some of you may not be familiar with it but you'll probably be familiar with at least one of the names that we're going to talk about this is a video hosted by Sean McDowell who I'm sure you know And he's hosting a gentleman called John Marriott, who's a PhD. He's written and studied quite a lot about people deconverting from Christianity. So that's the topic of this conversation I'm going to hear. I know there's already people who have gone through and analysed and responded to this video. So you probably are already familiar with this video. This is our turn now. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play the video through. Some of the points from the video may be cut in the the final edit, but we're basically going to go through the video. It's about an hour long. There'll be a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. So if you want to go away afterwards and listen to it, you can go and do that. Or if you want to pause now, listen to it and then come back so you've got some context to what we're listening to. Fine, you can go ahead and do that down in the show notes. The first link should be the link to this video. So we're just going to hit play and go through and we're going we've got multiple notes about this video about 16 i think stop points through this video where we're going to talk about it is an interesting dichotomy when christians talk about people who leave the faith because usually it's christians who have no experience of the kind of doubts that lead people like myself and andrew and david to leaving faith so there's bits that they get wrong in this video but there are also bits that they get right so I hope that we're going to be fair. If you have any thoughts, any comments about our analysis of this video, where anywhere where you disagree with us, anything that you think we should have picked up on, on gmail.com, that is the, the address to find us on. But before we get into that, Andrew, I haven't let you speak yet. I do apologise. I'm rattling away as if I'm the only person who owns this brand. You are the equal partner in this, this brand. How are you, sir? Have you had a good week? I have. Uh, Hello, kids. Thanks for joining this episode. Uh, I think it's going to be quite a good one. It sure is. We've probably spent more time than is healthy reviewing and picking apart this video, going over some of it in detail, making notes, cutting clips out, etc. So I hope that translates into an episode that is worth listening. So without uh, any further wasted time, let's go straight in. I'm going to hit play on this. You're going to go straight into the audio. All right, friends, thanks for joining us. We have a very important conversation today because if you've been following the news at all, you've heard a range of different what are called deconversion stories of former pastors, 
uh, apologists, evangelists, writers, musicians who have left the Christian faith. There's a ton of stories on this. But one thing that has not been done, as far as I'm aware, is some very careful, objective research on why people are leaving the faith and maybe some thoughts of how concerned Christians can respond. Well, we have with us today the perfect guest, and I mean that for <laughs> a few reasons. Number one, I'm going to make sure I get this right. He's the program and research coordinator at the Center for Christian Thought at Boom 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 Biola mm -hmm. University. So he's a colleague and friend of mine, but also the author of a book called The Anatomy of Deconversion I'm going to show here. Dr. John Marriott, I read your book when you first sent it to me. We had to Think Biblically podcast. I read it again this morning, and it's just excellent, and it's insightful in terms of content and terms of tone. So thanks for writing it, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Before John goes into his responses, there's a point I'd just like to make here. And incidentally, there is going to be a link to John Marriott's website in our show notes. And if you follow the link to the video in our show notes, there will be a link to John's book if you're interested in reading that. But I will just say one thing quickly while it occurs to me. I know one atheist podcaster who has interviewed John Marriott previously and was sent an early copy of this book and read it and was invited to write one of the um, the, the preambles, you know, that people who've read the book then write a short review of the book. And then sometimes if the review includes a juicy few words, they'll be snip quoted uh, around the blurb of the book. So I know one atheist podcaster who got sent this book and read it and was invited to to write their thoughts so that John Marriott could include an atheist comment approving of his book. What I do know is this atheist podcaster declined to write about it. And I think that should give you a clue as to how this book is being received by people who it's actually studying, i.e. people who have left Christianity and are now atheists. Bear that in mind a little bit. Yes, that might be me poisoning the water, but I just want to set the scene here with integrity and with honesty, there are already atheists who've read the book and think, yeah, you know what, this might not be as great as the Christians say that it is. So let's get, just carry on now. One of the interesting things that Sean says to John is that he's not aware of any objective research that has come out prior to John's book having to do with the reasons that people walk away from Christianity. In this show, there are some stories told about people and the reasons they leave Christianity. And I just want our listeners to hear how the reasons that people give for walking away from Christianity for themselves get recast by Sean and John during this show to somehow minimize them or to, uh, to make them seem less, and less important or more subjective than the person would have uh, reported for themselves. I think it'll be clearer as we go through, but it's an important note for people to listen uh, listen for from the outset. Yeah, actually, and have you, I'm glad that you said that because there is another podcast, I think it's called the Side B Podcast, and the person who hosts that, Jana, and I can't remember her surname, she's been on the Unbelievable Podcast. Her PhD is on this subject. And her PhD thesis is a few hundred pages long. And she's done this study. So that document is out there. It is available on the Internet to download. I haven't got a link because I didn't think about this particular individual. 
So I haven't put the link and it won't be in the show notes unless I think about it when I'm editing. Uh, but there is information, there is research and there is study out there. Also, a Christian guest who's been on this show before, Joel Furchers, I think his name is. He's also done some writing and is currently studying on this subject. He hasn't quite gone as advanced as either John or Jana have in terms of publishing information on it. But this kind of stuff is out there by Christians. Right. OK, let's carry on with John's response. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Now, the first obvious question I just want to begin with is of all the things you could research or spend your time on, why the phenomena of deconversion? That's a good question. And sometimes I ask myself the same thing. It uh, started out when I was at graduate school. I was going to Biola doing a PhD in intercultural studies. And uh, I came across a website that uh, really shook my world. Before I came to Biola, I was on a division one track and field uh, team and I uh, was competing in the triple jump and I was having a terrible season. During that period of time, Jonathan Edwards uh, from Great Britain yeah. shattered the world record three times in one year in the triple jump. And the British press reported that they were more impressed with his personal life than they were his athletic abilities because mm. he was uh, a very committed believer, follower of Jesus. Uh, he had no skeletons in his closet and he even refused to compete on a Sunday for a number of years because he had the conviction, much like Eric Little, that um, that competing on Sunday was uh, out, out, of, out of question for him. So he has a change of heart. He competes. He wins the world championship and uh, he's training for the Olympics in 1996. And I'm going to Florida State University for this track meet. And I'm having a terrible season uh, on the verge of wanting to quit. And my teammate comes up to me and says, hey, I was just in the weight room. You'll never guess who's in there. Turns out Jonathan Edwards is in the weight room. So I go in and wait till he's done. I share my sad story with him about how I'm a triple jumper and that I'm having a terrible time and how I'm a Christian and he's a Christian and just wanted to know if he had any advice for me. And he says, well, why don't we go out for lunch? And so to make the long story short, he takes me out for lunch and pick his wife up from a Bible study. And on the way there, he's telling me about how he wants to go to Dallas Theological Seminary when he's done, study Israelology, you know, shares with me his, his change of heart and his theological reasons for why he thinks it's okay to compete on a Sunday. And uh, then he goes off and uh, wins the uh, uh, Olympic gold medal in Sydney in, in 2000. And so, you know, there was this, he was this hero of mine and uh, he was everything that I really wanted to be athletically. And he was this amazing Christian. So fast forward to 2007, I'm uh, looking online trying to find out what he's doing these days because I knew he had retired. And I came across a website that said that Jonathan Edwards had uh, taken a leap out of Christianity and he no longer identified as a Christian. And that he said that he was actually happier and freer than ever before as a former Christian. Wow. And so that, that really rocked my, my world. I had no concepts for that, no categories to put that. And uh, that got me searching on the internet, and I found that he is just the tip of the iceberg. There's tens of thousands of other people like him out there. Stopping there, because this Jonathan Edwards story right at the beginning really touched me when I was listening to this. Partly because I'm British, Jonathan Edwards is British, and he is he's genuinely a hero of the British, certainly 15 years ago. He was certainly a hero. He was a, a clean sports person. He was a genuine pleasure to see being interviewed trackside because he always had this huge smile on his face. He talked so nicely and so politely with everybody. 
he had this demeanor of somebody who was a genuinely nice guy. And if you bumped into him in the circumstances, right, he would ask you to come and join him for lunch. He really did give off this feeling through the television of being that. And people like myself knew that he was a Christian. And I bought his book, his autobiography, after he smashed the world record there that was that you've just heard. And I, I had that book and it was a treasure of mine. I read it, really enjoyed reading it really enjoyed learning a little bit more about the guy's life. And I remember having a kind of similar reaction when I heard that Jonathan Edwards had renounced his faith. Effectively, it was around about the time that he retired, so he disappeared off our TV screens. And then we heard that uh, he'd uh, renounced his faith. And within uh, two years of that, we started seeing him on TV screens again, doing commentary work for the BBC uh, and stuff. And so for People like myself were still, a, I say, relatively young Christian. Obviously, I was an adult, and uh, you said 2007, I think, in that. So I was a parent as well, a very young new parent. And yeah, it was it was challenging, and I was obviously wasn't to know it at the time, but it came a couple of years before my whole journey away from faith started. So for me, there's a bit of an affinity there. And as far as I know, I haven't checked for the context of this recording, but so far as I know. Jonathan's wife remained a Christian and Jonathan went to church, continued to go to church with his family, even though he'd uh, recanted on his, his faith just for the goodness of the family. I don't know what the situation is now. I haven't tried to look about that, but that's how I remember it about 10 years ago. So hearing this right at the top of this and hearing John talk about how it rocked him, it was a similar experience to me and all the Christians that I talked to who knew about this story. We all felt the same because we all saw Jonathan Edwards as a high profile Christian. And we know that Christians tend to gravitate towards this kind of clean, high profile, successful Christian. Cliff Richard is uh, another obvious example to those in the UK because they help to inspire us. They help us show that, yes, you can be a Christian and successful. Yes, being a Christian and being a really nice person in the in front of the public shows Christians in a good light. You know, they'll know we are Christians by our love kind of thing, because this is really the kind of person it was. So to hear that kind of pedestal Christian fall away from faith is genuinely devastating to quite a lot of Christians. And that included me as a, a young Christian. So that's why this particular bit and John's introduction really struck home for me and put me in genuine hope for what the rest of this episode was going to be. You two, do you know the John Edwards story? Did Was this news to you or were you already familiar with it when you heard this bit? I watched him in the Olympics. Before I say any more about that, I, I want to ask you a question. Did you deconvert uh, before you heard him on TV as a commentator after his deconversion? Oh, that's that's so long ago, and my memory's so blurry on the timescales, I can't answer that with any accuracy. I, I'm okay. sorry, Andrew. That's okay. Let me ask you one more question. When you heard him as a commentator, would you still have said he was a genuinely nice guy? Would you still have said he's somebody you'd like to go to lunch with, uh, somebody that would, uh, you know, pick up a nice conversation with you given the opportunity? Great question, and yes. I'll leave my conclusions for the listeners. <laughs> good insight there, sir. Good insight. I didn't know Jonathan Edwards, although I was a triple jumper in school, as you might uh, recall. 
a, a very noble sport. The thing that struck me when I was listening to the story was how Jonathan Edwards refused to go to meets on a Sunday. Uh, another thing that you might recall when we were in school, Andrew, is that I took a singular stance with band. I was probably the school's premier musician, at least for a while. I wasn't the best at anything. I was a good all-rounder. I was someone that they liked to trot out, and I was big in band. But I, I refused to go to things that were done on Sundays. And uh, the same thing with swim meets and track meets and things like that. I had a had a year of that brand of insanity. And so I really felt very connected to that part of Jonathan's story and the part of the story where he says he stopped doing that for a while, even though there was no commentary on that, I can give you a little commentary. At some point when you have these kinds of radical positions, you wake up one morning and you realize that's stupid. And it, it really isn't, there, there isn't a, you know, some theological moment where you've studied and restudied and you, you figure something, you just realize you know, that's dumb. Even even under Christian standards, that's kind of dumb. And I think that that's, that's the kind of moment that starts the domino falling in the direction of deconversion. And so Christians, they should really be concerned about people who have these hard positions like, you know, I refuse to do athletics on a Sunday because one morning they're going to wake up. And they're going to realize that's dumb. And when they realize that's dumb, there's a lot of other dumb stuff they're going to realize, too. So I just thought I would um, share that uh, bit and I'll head back on mute. I'm just going to drop something in which I know at least one of our listeners is going to be thinking through their minds. I'm going to say it without any commentary because I don't know what my firm opinion is on this. So it'll be pointless for me to speculate further. I'm just going to drop in the suggestion that when you make a Sunday decision and then realize that it's potentially an income limiting decision, should we be surprised that your theology changes? I was going to make the same observation about NFL football players. Must not be any Christians in the NFL because they all play on Sunday. Right. We, I think we're going to stop racing afterwards because John's going to move on to something else. So I'm just going to hit play and we'll see what happens. And I said I'd like to figure out why this happens. That's amazing that you said in your book, when you just Google deconversion stories, tens of thousands come up, dozens of websites. This is a big phenomenon. Now, I heard you tell that story. I read you telling that story in your book. But I remember sitting in this office probably seven or eight years ago. When a dear friend of mine who had a huge influence on my life, I got a text that he had left his faith and it's like time stood still and I got a tear in my eye and I went and told my wife like it it shook me up. This is an issue that you studied it academically, but it's a very personal issue for a lot of people. So I appreciate that you bring the mind to this, but also the heart that really comes through in your book. Now, I'm curious. I haven't asked you this before, but did studying all of these how did studying all of these stories affect you? Did it make you mad at areas the church is falling short? Did it make you heartbroken? Did it make you wrestle with your own faith? What was your personal journey through studying these deconversion stories? Yeah, all, all of the above. Okay. Uh, I, was frust I was frustrated. 
when I would read some of the things that people said that they were told by their church or how they were treated by their church, uh, stories of, uh, you know, one that comes to mind is a, is a man who was uh, going through a divorce. And then as he was going through a divorce, he ended up being uh, diagnosed with cancer. And, and people in his church told him, well, that's what you get for getting divorced. And, and so, you know, the, that, those things were frustrating. Um, Sometimes I felt it, not encouraged, but uh, I felt as though I had put myself out. I had listened to some of the best reasons and the best arguments that people had, and I didn't find them very persuasive. Then there were other times when I would be interviewing someone and I would feel a real kind of personal connection with them and say, this guy's story is not much different than my story. And how do I know that I'm not just choosing confirmation bias over the truth, because this guy and I are pretty similar and he listened to the same stuff I did. And he came to the conclusion that the arguments for Christianity weren't all that good. And I came to the conclusion that I think that they're they're sufficient. I'm going to stop there, but I want to rewind 30 seconds to go back to the man about the divorce, because that's the bit I want to pick out from that. And you may have heard it in the audio, what Sean's response to that was. So just to rewind again. So John was talking about an example of a man who was getting who deconverted as a as as the fallout of that, and this happens an awful lot in people who deconvert. The marriage failed, and so he was getting a divorce. And after that was going on, he ended up being diagnosed with cancer. And then some unthinking person said, "Oh, that's because you've given up on God." And Sean, on the video, his, his reaction is very physical, but there's also this big sigh that you probably heard in the audio. And this sort of thing goes on an awful lot. The last church I was in as a Christian, there was one of the senior people in the church was very much of this kind of thing. If you've got illness which won't, which doesn't go away, it's clearly because of sin. And this person was holding this position in this church, holding this opinion in this church, telling people about this opinion in this church, while having a teenage son who had asthma, who couldn't be cured of his asthma. And you just kind of wonder what kind of mentality is going on there. What message does that give to his son? And how does his son feel about that? And does that damage that father-son relationship over time? And so I went straight to that example of this. But I've also got much, much more personal example to tell of, of this. Back when I was nine years old, and people who listen to this podcast will have heard this, me tell the story on multiple occasions of um, when growing up in Zambia, I was growing up on a farm which had some mission activity on it. And among other people, my mother got kidnapped at one point and uh, suffered and was beaten. And so were the people she was with uh, got beaten. There were three of them uh, in total. I'm sure you've heard me tell this story on at least one episode previously. So I won't say any more than that. But one thing that I don't think I've said is after that event, you know, because it lived in our memories and our immediate memories for a long time afterwards. But it was within a few months of that event. I remember being on the farm and a, an adult who I trusted, I won't identify who that adult is, suggested to me that what had happened might be a result of some sin that was going on on, on that farm. So you try to imagine telling a nine year old child that he came very close to losing his mother through this horrific act that happened to her because of some sin. And not only was the mother affected by this, but other people. And you can guarantee that some of the people affected by this atrocity 
were absolutely innocent of the sin that was going on, even if you don't know the technical details of what was going on. Because trust me, at nine years old, I did not know any of the technical details. I didn't know who was being identified as sin. I didn't know what the sin might have been. All I knew was these people had suffered terribly. You try telling that to a nine-year-old, you imagine what it might do to them. It's not, it's not a very a nice thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do. Don't do it, Christians. Matthew, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you at nine to go through the things that you've said on mic about Zambia and the things that you've said uh, off mic about Zambia. I don't ever feel like I can follow that story with anything meaningful, to be honest. Don't worry, Andrew. It's definitely not a competition, but thank you. When you were talking about the, uh, you know, the divorce thing and, you know, God did some smiting because of your sin, that kind of thing. Sean's reaction just seems to be, I don't want to speak ill of Sean. I do like Sean, but the reaction seems a little disingenuous to me because, and I think it's unfair to the people who say those kinds of things. And so I want to speak up for those Christians who say these things, because that is exactly the sort of thing that the God of their Bible does. That should not be a, a shocking idea, because the God of the Bible does that kind of smiting and that kind of punishing for disloyalty all the time. And so you can argue that people may be just misunderstanding scripture or whatever, but what you can't say is, ah, those ignorant people who never read their Bible. No, these are the people who do read their Bible, and they have identified rightly the types of things that this God does. We had AIDS in the 80s and 90s. Why did we have AIDS? Because those uh, those awful homosexuals are visiting sin uh, on the United States and were providing a safe haven for them, and that's why we had the problem with AIDS that we had. Why do we have COVID-19 right now? Won't take very long on YouTube for you to find a Christian preacher who says we have COVID-19 right now because of our sin. Uh, why is the U.S. having trouble on the world stage? It can't be because of bad political decisions. It is because God no longer stands with the United States because we're not a Christian nation. This is the kind of thing that gets said over every single crisis, big and small. That is true. There are a lot of Christians out there and they say that and David's right. It is a form of Christianity that you can pull straight out of the Bible. But I think Sean's reaction shows that there are Christians who see that and they recognise that the action is not interpreted as a loving action. So he clearly sees that there's a conflict between reading the Bible that way and being a loving person. And I think that's probably what uh, drives his reaction there. Right, so let's carry on then. So who's being more honest here? And so those were the areas that I kind of struggled with in, in interviewing people. You think more people are actually genuinely deconverting today. And I ask because there have been some major national stories on well-known authors and sons of famous people who leave their faith. No story's ever been done on me keeping the faith and the baton being passed from my father. So it doesn't fit the narrative it wants to be told. But we also live in a culture in which everybody needs to tell their story and needs to come out and describe who they really are. So I try to figure out sometimes how much of this is just more attention being paid versus the data showing, no, really, we have more people deconverting. What did you find in your research? 
It's difficult to know for sure, but I would say that all indicators are that people are leaving their faith in greater numbers than in the past. And and those the, I would those I would make that claim based on places like Pew Research or the General Social Survey that interviews people and comes out with statements that say things like as far back as uh, 2009 um, that people were leaving religious faith at five to six times their the historic rate. In 2015, Pew said that for every person who becomes a Christian, four are leaving the faith. The one that I think is the most uh, staggering is the Pine Tops Foundation did a did a survey, and I think you're familiar with this. I've, I've shared it uh, elsewhere, but let me just read to you what, what they have to say about this. Things I'd like to say really quickly about that is that they- I'm going to stop before John says his bits because it's possible I might cut that bit out uh, in the audio. The two surveys that I mentioned, the Pew Research Survey and the Pine Top Survey, I've found links to both those surveys and they are in the show notes. So you can go there to the show notes and read what is said there. So I won't bother summarizing anything about those surveys. Just pop into the show notes, find those links, go read the surveys yourself you'll find all the information that you need there. The thing I'd like to rewind back on is about the increasing numbers. And I think John is right here and he's straight up and honest about that. It does look like more people are leaving. And I think the anecdotal evidence that I'd like to add to that is when you go and listen to podcasts about people who are coming to Christianity and the Side B podcast is the only one that comes to mind at the top of my head, and then compare that to the number of podcasts about people going the other way, and you've got Voices of Deconversion, you've got Graceful Atheists, you've got Everyone's Autonomous, you've got Everyone's Agnostic, which no longer runs, but that also did it. And there's probably a few more that I've completely forgotten about. There are just in that space there far more content about people telling their leave story than there are about people telling their arrive story. So I think John's absolutely spot on here. The, the numbers are, if you're a Christian, the numbers don't look good. Do either of you two have anything to add? Only that it doesn't, uh, well, it seems to me that the uh, information is out there. It's not that hard to come by. John sort of said, you know, well, we don't necessarily have good data. Well, I think we do. Uh, Pew Research numbers show that the nuns, the people that don't declare a religion, are the fastest growing segment uh, in the United States. I, I don't uh, claim that this mirrors the world. But for the first time, the nuns in the United States equal the population of the Catholics. Now, you might say there are a number of things that could account uh, for this, that people aren't leaving the church. It's just that the newborn people who reach sort of the age of decision making, those people aren't going to church. But the people who were in church previously are staying there and that could account for it. But that's not what the Pew data shows. So I don't think this information is hard to come by. I don't think the information is particularly mysterious. People are leaving church. And in fact, in a couple of minutes, in this video itself, we're going to learn why. So if you're listening and, uh, and you know, you, you're a particularly mathy kind of person and you think, well, Andrew's, uh, Andrew may just be picking and choosing numbers and coming up with the wrong answer in his head. This question gets answered in this video, and it's coming up. They use the word nominally in there a couple times. And so what they're saying is these are people who at least identified as a Christian. They were brought up in the church. 
what the level of their commitment was, what the level of their understanding was, we don't really know. And so are, are these people who were never really in the faith and part of the body of Christ to begin with um, and are, are drifting away and walking away now because we live in the age of authenticity? I'm going to stop there because I've just heard something which I clearly didn't notice in my other editing. We're going to come back to this subject, but you notice that John dropped that question. Are these people who were never in the faith? And then he moves on. But he's just dropped a little thing there. And if you're a Christian listening to this, you're probably going to hear that and recognize that uh, for the toxicity that it is and run with it. Because there are a lot of Christians who take that attitude when listening to things like that. So I get concerned when a Christian like John is trying to talk sensibly and with compassion here and he's talking it through and he just drops that little thing like a pebble in a smooth pond and it makes a ripple but it's a noticeable ripple and then carries on with the thing so i get genuinely bothered when this kind of thing is innocuously and apparently innocently dropped into a monologue like this it bothers me to my core because it drives and it fuels the kind of thing that atheists like the three of us here all the time and it won't surprise you because you've probably heard it from me before the most common thing i hear from christians is i was never a christian to start with it's tedious it is frustrating and i do not treat that kind of christian with respect and compassion because they are not treating me and other ex-christians with respect or compassion and john just dropping that thing in there validated that attitude whether John appreciates that or not whether he intended that or not he was careless with his words and he enabled and emboldened and fueled that terrible attitude that many many Christians hold I'm not accusing John necessarily of holding that because I don't know what his opinion is but he has fueled that opinion in other people and I don't like it I do not like it at all. Now I'm a little annoyed, more than a little annoyed. These two men, in this guise of defending Christianity, have put themselves in a place of not only judging the non-believers, but judging all the believers. You see, that's what the word nominal here means. We have these nominal Christians, and we don't know what their level of understanding is. Yes. In other words, if you walk away from Christianity, you are only a nominal Christian. You never really understood Christianity. You weren't well learned enough. And if you're a Christian that has struggles, regardless of whether you stay or not, these two fellows will say, oh, well, you're uh, you're struggling because uh, maybe you're nominal. Maybe you don't have enough understanding. Maybe you need to come to one of my lectures. It is this attempt at a kind of realism that, that doesn't exist, this naive realism that the world must be how they see it. And if everybody else had their level of understanding, their level of education, thought their great thoughts, then Christianity just wouldn't have a problem. Okay, I'll stop ranting now. Right, let's give it a thought.
where everyone has their truth. And the most important thing that you can be is uh, authentic and uh, to your own self. And, and, and so I think that, that that might be part of it. But it also does seem that the Internet has brought uh, right into everyone's homes the ability to gain information from outside sources that they never had encountered before, that if they hadn't encountered criticisms of the Bible or arguments for the existence of God, they probably would have just casually continued on in their faith. But it's encountering some of these really troubling things online that really has been a catalyst for a lot of people. So for those reasons, I think that, yes, I do think that more people are, are walking away from a faith that they once professed. That was the answer. I said that we would find the answer to the question why it seems like people are leaving in a couple of minutes. There it was. Today, people have access to better information. You can blame the internet, but people have access to better information. That better information grows as our human knowledge grows. It grows as our ability to understand the world around us grows. And Christianity is losing its devotees precisely because you've got a 2,000 plus year old book that can't keep up. Yes, the internet facilitated my exposure to podcasts and greater scientific information. And that then triggered my exit from Christianity. I'm fine with the internet being blamed for it. God bless the internet. I would say one of the signs of a cult is that they control the flow of information so that they become the only source of accurate information and everything else is viewed with suspect. And to the degree that they can teach you to think that way is the degree to which they are successful. Well, I would suggest that Christianity has behaved that way for a long time before the internet uh, existed, which is to say, we are the source of the only true information. The priest is the only source of the true information. Your preacher is the only source. The Bible is the only book, the only source of true information. And everything else should be held suspect. But that is harder and harder to pull off in an information age where people can look elsewhere and find other sources of information that they find valid. And the, the moment people start finding valid information outside of their priest and outside of their Bible, religion loses a foothold and it can't get it back. Yep. Right. There's enough data to say that the trend is real. We don't want to be alarmist. But we should pay attention to this. Now, do we know who really was a Christian before and who wasn't after? We don't know that. But there's enough data to stop and pause and stories like you do to say, wait a minute, we need to pay attention. Now, that said, there was a comment that just that, that came up that kind of said if somebody leaves the faith, they were never really in it for the first place. I'm just going to stop there because I've found this uh, comment that uh, Sean references. And there's a link to that in the show notes. It's a guest post called uh, Guest Post Deconversion, the All or Nothing Fallacy. So because as you can see, they've gone back to the question and back to the subject of were they really Christians to start with? And this does come back again. So I'm not going to spend too much time on here. And you can see why they spend a lot of time and keep coming back to this subject, because this is clearly something that torments a lot of Christians. 
it's clearly an issue for a lot of Christians, as evidenced by me already saying that it's the single most common thing that we hear. So this is a thorn in the side, metaphorically, of many Christians about this kind of question. But they're asking it an awful lot. And I'll give you a spoiler here. They don't really put a lot of effort into answering it. And I think this is the problem that they've got here. They're asking the question loads and loads, but they're not really properly exploring it. I would like somebody like Sean to meet me as a Christian when I was a Christian and be able to predict whether or not I'm a real Christian, because that would solve it for them. In fact, Sean said earlier on, I'm sorry, I said I was going to not going to stay around on this. <laughs> I, I clearly am. But you heard Sean earlier on in this episode where he said the deep friend of his uh, had been a Christian and then fell away. Did Sean ever doubt his Christian's, Christian's faith? Clearly not, because you heard of what his example was. So there's the answer. These people were Christians. Anyway, let's carry on. Now, you believe even if somebody is a reformed thinker and embraces eternal security, your research is still important for them in the church. Why? I, I hear this all the time. Actually, I wrote a, a guest blog at an academic website uh, recently, and I saw one of the posts was, well, if anybody walks away from Christianity, they were never a Christian to begin with. So this is irrelevant. And so I think it's really important to address that, that question. And what I want to say is, whether you're more Reformed or you're more Arminian in your thinking, and I'll just define those really quickly, that Reformed is that you are, once a person is saved, they are saved forever, they're kept by the power of God, and they can. there's nothing that can ever be done that would ever cause them to walk away from their faith, because it's God who saved them, and it's God who's keeping them. The other side of that is, is that, yes, of course it's God who saves, but people still can utilize their free will to say, God, I don't want to be in the kingdom anymore. I don't want to be part of your family, and I don't believe this anymore, and I'm walking away. The same choice that brought them in is the same choice that they have to leave. Now, for the people who are more reformed and will say, um, all of this research and all of the people that you talked to were never saved, so this isn't really very helpful. But what I would say in response to that is that even if you're right and the reformed position is true, that um, the same questions, the same problems, the same struggles that cause people to leave the faith are the very same ones that cause for, in a Reformed perspective, the elect to come to the edge of leaving their faith, right? They come to the verge of committing apostasy. And the only thing that would keep them from doing that, according to a more Reformed view, is that it's, it's God who's keeping them in the faith. But I think that what we want to do is try and avoid pushing people to the verge of an apostasy that they can't commit. I'd like to pause there again because John's just said something that didn't really trigger anything the first few times that I've listened to this video. And he makes this phrase, it's God who's keeping people in the faith. And this is a line that I take quite a lot when I'm pushing back to people who try to claim that I was never a real Christian. Because I say, okay, I genuinely believed. I had a, I did a conversion expression. I certainly had experiences that I described when I was a Christian as you know, experiences of the Holy Spirit or gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and all sorts of religious experiences. And I prayed deeply and, and heavily to God. So if it's God who keeps people in the faith, then it's God who lets people out of the faith. That means if it's true that I was never properly saved, it's not by anything that I did. Because I acted as a believer, I was never told I couldn't be a proper believer or well, there was a question mark over 
my, my believability by people who I knew and trusted, the people who knew me and trusted. I did everything that every Christian I know did. If it's true that I was never really saved, then it can't be my fault. There's only one person whose fault it can be, and that's God's fault, because he didn't act on my conversion request. And when I doubted and begged, he didn't act again. And when it came time for me to walk away, he continued not acting. So if it's God that's keeping people in the faith, like John dropped there, then it's also God who's keeping people out of the faith. Therefore, if the Christian who has not abandoned their faith and is a true believer and is really saved by the power of God and will be kept by the power of God, uh, encounters a lot of the, a lot of these issues that, that we find over and over and over again in deconversion narratives, they will still go through a, a sanctification progress that is stilted because they're wrestling with problems that could have been avoided in the first place. And I think, you know, we want to do whatever we can, sort of a faithful expediency to avoid setting people up for a crisis of faith, even if they can't lose their faith. I have no idea how to make sense of a crisis of faith that you can't lose. So that, that's not funny, but it, it came across very funny. Sorry, Andrew. This was what I was waiting for. This is why I waited yeah. from the last pause. I have no idea what it means to suffer a crisis of faith that you can't lose. I, I didn't make this up. You heard it yourself. I have no idea how to make sense of that kind of gobbledygook. And I refuse to make myself responsible for trying to for trying to unblur those lines and go through the kind of cognitive dissonance necessary to make that kind of statement part of my worldview. That's really helpful for so for those who are are more Armenian in their theology, you would they would take some of the warnings in scripture about apostatizing straightforward and say somebody could leave their faith we better listen to these stories somebody who's reformed eternal security you'd say well on that theology they can't leave their faith but this helps us with discipleship because the same questions being asked from those who never were part of the faith are those who are part of the faith i think that's really wise and smart now let me read a comment that's here because i know this is the kind of comment you heard a ton in your research for this book uh charles says I left Christianity because I genuinely began to question the reliability of the Bible. I was a Christian for seven years. I was quite zealous, and it was painful leaving the religion. Now, we're going to come back to some of the pain and the hurt that many people who've left the faith uh, share. But can you talk about the kind of research you did for this book? Before John goes into that, I'd like to pick up on the comment from Charles, leaving the pain bit aside, because we are going to come back to that. But the comment that Sean read out there from Charles was he could no longer trust the reliability of the Bible. And I think for many, many people who move away from faith, this is probably extremely key point. They may have lots of other doubts and their doubts may come from various points. For me, it was about uh, evolution and the literacy, literacy of Adam and Eve. And then there was more to come after that. For some people, it might be the actions of, of other church people. However, people arrive at their doubts. At some point, 
they will need to face can I trust what's in the Bible? If the answer is yes, then they're probably likely to stay a Christian, even if it's if it's a nominal Christian, choose a word that we've already heard or a different type of Christian. But for certainly for the three of us here, that trust was irredeemably broken, probably even erased completely. And when you're in that position, I don't see any way that you can come back to that. And I think this that bit get, gets touched on later. And this goes back to the whole information is available. We have much better knowledge about what history was like about that time. We have much better ability to be able to challenge and to question what, what's in the Bible. We've done podcasts on miracles, you know, how the miracle claims in the Bible are, are definitely questionable and all these kinds of things. And so the nitty gritty and the minute of many things in the Bible, in the New Testament and, and elsewhere are genuinely questionable. And if the our ability to take those as written, take them on faith is eroded. I just don't see how we can come back from that. I certainly can't come back from that. I think I've passed the point in which I am able to come back from that because I just don't see how any trust in what the Bible says can be restored for me because it, it's simply not there. Did you guys have any thoughts about that bit that Sean said? We got a statement about Christianity and the resurrection of Jesus coming up, and I'm going to hold my uh, thoughts on biblical reliability until that statement is made. Okay. David? You want me to give a part of my thoughts that I talked about in the run-up to this? Yeah, go for that, because it's probably going to set us up for about the next 20 minutes of video. I'll give the first half of my thought, and you can see if you want the other half sometime later in the show. The Bible thing is a problem. Uh, I hammer on the Bible thing on my podcast as, as often as I can, because once the Bible falls, it all falls. And the reason is all of Christianity rests on the Bible. You can't throw a Bible away and then come up with Yahweh and you know, the various uh, tenets of faith and so forth. It, it's all Bible dependent. There are a couple of ways that you lose traction with the Bible. The first way is you are convinced you do understand the Bible and you've read it and it's pretty awful. And you can't you can't um, you can't unread it. But then the other way is some Christian comes along and says, oh, no, no, no. The problem is you're not reading it right. You're not understanding it right. Well, what they're telling you, what they're trying to convince you of is you don't understand how to read plain, plain words. You, you can read every other document, but you can't read this document. So either you're too stupid or this document is too complex and you need a lot more education, something like that. And so if you're convinced that you understand it and it says awful things, you're done. And if you're convinced that you don't understand it and you can't because it's going to take too many years of scholarship, you're done. Either way, you're done, and the Christian is not helping themselves by piling more and more this idea that you just don't understand the plain words that you're reading. Uh, there's there's no way they can bring you back from that, especially that way. Because I'm guessing you listen to a whole lot of people like Charles and try hard to accurately represent their experiences in this book, which, in case you don't mention it, was a part of your doctoral dissertation. Yeah, so this is part of my doctoral dissertation, and for that, I interviewed 30 people who once identified as Christians. They were evangelical in that they made a, a profession of faith at some point. They had a what we would kind of call a high view of the Bible. They recognized that they needed Jesus for their salvation. He died on the cross. He rose again, and they were 
genuinely committed to that, right? So these weren't people who were kind of on the fringes. I talked with people who were uh, former worship leaders, uh, former missionaries, people who considered themselves former apologists, etc. And, and then on top of that, after the dissertation was done, I worked with a group of folks out of, um, uh, it's the, I, I forget what the ac- actual acronym is, but it's the study for not for, uh, for non-religion. It's a secular organization made up of people who don't okay. believe in the existence of God. Um, and we worked on a journal article together where we went over 300 different deconversion narratives found online and analyzed them and said, you know, wh- why are the reasons that people are leaving the faith? What's the process look like? And so I, I think I've tried to, to listen well and represent people well. And I think I've tried to read broadly, whether it's in books that are anthologies of deconversion narratives or just online narratives, to, to really try and get a, a bit of a handle on what it's like for people who are, are going through the process. So it's not just how I feel or, or my thoughts or uh, some anecdotal evidence. Uh, this was probably about seven years worth of being involved wow. In, wow. in the data. So, yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't realize it was seven years. That's you say sometimes when people give a response back, well, people can't really leave the faith or give these trite responses. It's because we don't want to enter into the messiness and difficulty of why people really leave the faith and that there can be a range of different reasons. I mean, people aren't like bricks that if you push them, they just move and fall in line. So you talk about emotional reasons, but also cognitive reasons. Can you cite some of the emotional reasons that were cited to you in these studies that people who deconverted often shared? Sure. And I think that emotional reasons and value reasons, I make a distinction between, but probably can be lumped together for this question. Certain value reasons, for example, that would be attached to emotions might be something like, you know, I really read passages in the Old Testament that talked about what God said to do to the Canaanites or or hell. And, and I can't worship a God who would do those kinds of things. Uh, so there's those value-driven feelings that... And my earthly father wouldn't treat me like that, but yet God seems to not treat his people all that well. And so there's... And so it doesn't surprise me that people feel disappointed with people in the church and emotionally scarred because God didn't come through the way that they expected him to. I think that distinction is helpful. They're going to change topics here, and there are some bits that uh, are worth dissecting. The idea that God doesn't owe any particular person anything, I find to be counter to what I think of as ethical. If we are supposed to be in some sort of of relationship, some sort of covenant with God, covenants only work when both sides have something to gain. And the idea that I would somehow give my entire life for a God who doesn't owe me anything on the mere hope that he would keep his promise of eternal bliss after I'm dead strikes me as a little crazy. Mm-hmm. I'll leave it there. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting idea that I you know what I haven't really thought a huge amount on this subject. I know there are people who've thought about it far far more than me, and I'm I'm trying to think why I don't spend a lot of time thinking about this particular thing about God owing us thing. 
I don't think that question is particularly important to me personally. I think it's one of those questions was, yeah, I'm sure there's justifications for both answers, yes and no. But I'm not sure I care enough about this particular subject to really uh, be bothered by it. There are far uh, there are far more subjects that I am very capable of getting wound up and enthusiastic about. And I think this is one that I'm quite happy to to leave by the roadside because there, there are others that get me fired up far more impressive. The problem is then you can't tell this Christian God from an evil God. If he doesn't owe you anything. Yeah, good point, actually. What is your faith based on? If this God doesn't owe you anything, on what are you basing your faith? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a a huge issue, (laughs) actually. So uh, the Internet can note that this is one of the rare times where I would disagree with Matt. (laughs) They would also note I disagree with Andrew all the time. But um, at this (laughs) this juncture, (laughs) I would say that this is one of those things that Christians like to poo-poo when they say atheists didn't have good reason. You know, they thought that God didn't hold up his side of the bargain or whatever. That's an excellent reason to walk away. That is actually that's one of the better reasons to walk away because there were promises made. <laughs> how many sermons have we all sat through about how God keeps his promises? You know, his promises are secure. And God made uh, covenants with uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And even when it didn't look well, he kept his promises and covenants. And so when a, when a person feels like they have a legitimate claim that God gave me this expectation and he didn't follow through with the covenant, that's legitimate. You know, if we have that expectation with a human, you know, we can take them to court and someone can adjudicate. But there is no one. Uh, we can't we can't arbitrate that when it's God who seems to be breaking his word. And then there's just some other Christian coming along saying, well, you shouldn't have expected God to give you that anyway. Well, you told me to expect it. Of course I should have expected it. And God God said that he was going to keep his promises and he made certain expectations. Yes, that's a very good reason. Let me just frame this with loaves and fishes. We have the apostles talking to a crowd, and, uh, and he's talking about how good the Heavenly Father is. And he compares God the Father to parents. And he says, uh, all of you people, when your children are in need, do you give them sweets? Oh, you give them bread. And how much more will your Father in Heaven, in essence, be good to you? It's not just an implied promise. There's this ongoing uh, supposed parental relationship. It's supposed to be far better even than the uh, relationship of good parents to their children. Now, I don't know how to square that with the idea that God doesn't owe me anything. There's a lot of theology on how to square these things. I'll just say that I found it worthy of walking away from it. Yeah, I think you both made um, good points there, actually. It's um, it's still not a subject that fires me up, but I, I accept, accept the points you make, certainly the parent one. And the parent one is one that we've come to before and we've discussed before in episodes a while back. 
So that one certainly stands stands up for me. I see. I don't see that necessarily as God owing me, but I certainly see it as God not acting in the way that I would expect an earthly parent to act. In other words, his his behaviour as a parent is not great behaviour. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. It would take more than we can do in this review to talk about what uh, owing someone in this context, right? Um, but it is, yeah, it's responsibility is probably uh, the word that I'd use. Yeah, let's imagine we made uh, a fleet of sentient robots. Do we now have responsibility for their behavior and their maintenance and their upkeep? Well, yes, we do. Does that mean that those robots can individually claim that we owe them something? I, I guess it's just technicalities of, of the English language, but I, I guess in both cases, the answer could be yes, in which case, yes, God owes us. Wouldn't we at a minimum owe them the very thing that we strive for for all of us, which is a, a safe society in which to live, where we have uh, where we have rights that we can depend on? Because when you say God doesn't, uh, he, he said, you know, God didn't know anything. Uh, I was in financial trouble. I had this ministry for God. Uh, this is the thing, not only that he asked me to do, he actually commanded it. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, yada, yada, yada. This is, this is uh, the Great Commission. It's recorded in Matthew 28. It's recorded in uh, in Mark 16, though where it's recorded in Mark 16 is probably apocryphal. This Great Commission, the idea that I'm supposed to give everything for God, and he doesn't owe me anything in return, frankly sounds like the Manson family. Mm. Yeah, I, I I guess it's just the way different people think, because I've told the story about my experience of my mother being uh, kidnapped and beaten. And that particular event, while it is a significant factor in my life, and I can't tell my life story without reference to that event. And I've brought it up multiple times on podcasts, uh, on episodes of our podcast. It wasn't actually a feature of my deconstruction. I always affirm that it was scientific knowledge. But I do know somebody who's close to me who also had something awful happen to one of their parents. And they have cited to me in private conversation that that event and the knowledge of that event and the impact of that event meant that uh, they could no longer accept the existence uh, of a god they cite that as a reason why when they became a teenager they they just lost enthusiasm for christianity because that event was such a traumatic uh, moment uh, in their life and uh, as an adult they have said that it will it stops them from even considering going into a church let alone taking christianity seriously so different people think about these things very differently you know, I say it didn't affect my deconstruction. This individual that I know says it was pretty much the only and most important factor in their deconstruction. Mm. You both know the song Standing on the Promises. I'm not well, sure I do. You, you, then you weren't a real Christian. Um, <laughs> obviously, you're going to hurt me with the words like that. Sorry, standing on the promises is one of the most common Christian names across denominational lines. It is an affirmation by Christians of almost every stripe that there are promises from God to us 
and we can trust them. And so if, if later a Christian says, well, you shouldn't have expected God to give you anything as if he owed you anything, as if he had some word to keep with you, they're just confused about their own theology because they sing it every Sunday. They know very well that there are promises that theological God, theological God makes to us. And part of that faith is that we, we trust him to keep his part of it. You know, he, he asks us to do things and he promises that he will do things. And so we can you can say, well, you're confused about the thing that you should have expected God to do. But what you can't say is you shouldn't expect that God owes you anything. Because, of course, we should. That is what a covenant is. The next few minutes, Sean introduces John and asks him a question about the steps and the stages that people go through. Feel pain for people coming to grips with, like you said, say the genocide in the Old Testament, like the violence of God or hell. Like these aren't just math problems. These are issues that can come to a point of deeply bothering people emotionally, but also experiences. It's Os Guinness who says, he thinks hypocrisy is the biggest problem in the church that drives non-believers away. And whether it's number one or two, it's up there. So that emotional hurt can be tied to ideas, but also tied to people. I think that's a helpful distinction that you make there. What about cognitive reasons? There was a comment earlier where someone said, when I really started questioning the Bible, and you mentioned that. So explain what you mean by cognitive reasons and some of the top objections that you hear from deconverts. Sure. Yeah. The, the number one. So cognitive reasons are those reasons that we have that just come come to mind. They're not because we had a bad experience that caused us to reconsider our, our faith. It's because we came across some new information and that new information does not fit well or cohere well with the big Christian story. And for some people, it's a little bit like losing their belief in Santa Claus. Over time, as your child and you grow up, you eventually just get to the place where you say, yeah, I don't believe this anymore. And I'm not sure when, I can't pinpoint all of the factors that cause me not to believe it anymore, but it just doesn't make any sense to me anymore. And I can't force myself to believe in Santa Claus. So there would be kind of the uh, death okay. by a thousand cuts kind of cognitive process. But the, the, the ones where there is a real jarring distinction that takes place between uh, what, what people once believed and when they lose their faith usually comes when it, it, it approaches the Bible. And I'm, I'm not surprised that someone has said that it was analyzing the Bible that caused them to come to these conclusions. And so that would be number one. Usually people say, hey, you know, I was told that the Bible could not have any mistakes in it, because if it has one mistake in it, then it can't be the word of God. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not, I'm not uh, trashing the doctrine of an inerrancy. But what I am saying is, is that when we tell people that if the Bible has a mistake in it, it can't be the word of God, then we have just really set them up for a problem because as you're well aware, probably on the shelf behind you, you probably have at least four or five books on biblical difficulties, yeah. right? Because there's a ton of biblical difficulties and all yeah. it takes is for one of those biblical difficulties to take root and for a person not to have a good answer for that. And they feel as though, well, I guess I don't have all that much of a choice because this clearly can't be the word of God because there is an error in it. So the, the Bible is the number one uh, problems with the Bible is the number one cognitive reason why people struggle with their faith for sure. That matches up with my experience as well. You also mentioned evolution. We're going to come back to that, the intersection of science and faith. And you talk about a number of times in the book, kind of a biblical view of sexuality, how it can play a big role in this as well. 
you describe how, uh, and I, again, I appreciate this. You say each person has a unique deconversion story. We can't put people in a box, but there's also a common path, so to speak, that people journey down in their deconversion. Uh, you have seven steps. You don't have to walk through all seven, but what are some of the big keys that people commonly walk through in this process? Big steps. Yeah, the first would be something like a context that everyone comes out of. Oftentimes, not always, but often, the context that people come out of is one that's very rigid, one that's inflexible, one that has high demands, one that elevates a lot of doctrines to the area, to the level of a non-essential. You feel as though you're the only group that's out there that really has a handle on what the Bible teaches. So the context is really important, very okay. rigid. Second, there would be some kind of a crisis. Someone comes across uh, the teaching of, they take a, a biology class in university and they get exposed to the evidence for evolution and it's very persuasive to them and they have an assumption that evolution and the existence of God don't fit. It could be the problem of evil. Then there's usually some kind of a seeking of truth, trying to figure out where the truth lies. Many people uh, will try and, and bolster their faith. They might say, I'm going to get some good apologetics books. I'm going to watch some videos online. But for whatever reason, they don't find those persuasive. And then usually they will move into the stage of being an agnostic. And then from being an agnostic who says, I don't know what I believe, maybe to someone who says, I don't believe any of this at all anymore. It's just pretty clear to me that Christianity is not true. Is there a point of no return where somebody like crosses this threshold and it's like, sorry, you're gone, no going back? Or do people reconvert back at different stages? Yeah, that's a that's a million dollar question. I would say that it's almost impossible because so many people, you know, everyone has a unique story. But I think once you get to the place in the process where there now starts to become kind of a moral criticism of the faith, then it's almost moved from. I want to find reasons to believe this is true. I want to hold on to my faith because I think there are good reasons to do so. I think a person is is, in, in, is okay there. But I think once they start moving and they start now expressing. This bit really resounded with me as well the first time I listened to this. And John is really on to something on this point. But I think. This is different for different people. Some people arrive at moral criticism while they're still believers. And some people like me, they arrive at moral criticism quite a long time after they've left. My leaving process, as I keep affirming to a lot of people, was scientific and then the silence of God. And God just wasn't talking to me. And so I concluded that a God that doesn't talk to me is indistinguishable from a God that doesn't exist. And so that was when I gave myself permission to deny the existence of God and walk away. I still wanted to be I can't, a compatibility. I can't remember what the right word is now. Somebody who accepts that Christianity has got some good stuff and can live alongside science, but just, I just can't believe it. That was me for a long time. It was quite a while later before I reached the point where I actually said out loud or, or even in text on the screen, I can't remember which came first, that the God of the Bible is a God of the Bible I cannot accept because I don't even like that God. That's where I am now. But it took me a long time to get to that point after I'd already left there. That, that takes time. But like I say, for some people, that happens before they actually leave. So while John is right here, there is still a lot of nuance and a lot of detail that needs to be unpacked in, in this whole conversation. Uh, there's no coming back. 
uh, from moral criticism, he's right. It, or it, when I say that, I'm a bit hyperbolic. Uh, it's almost impossible to get someone to come back by means of persuasion when they have become convinced that the God that they once believed in is immoral. Because here's the thing, there, there are a couple of things. No one wants to believe in an evil God. So if your scenario is an evil God, it's just, it, it's still no God as far as they're concerned, because the God they believed in doesn't exist. So um, this is, that's one of the reasons it's hard to come back. But the other reason it's hard to come back is because our moral intuition is really our starting point for religion. And I don't want to get this uh, turned into the moral argument. So, you know, I, I know I'm going to say a lot of things that might be easy to challenge because I'm, I'm just not going to go three hours into a, a moral argument discussion. But we don't get our ethical intuition from philosophy books. That's not where it comes from. And no philosophical argument, whether it's mine or yours or Val's or Dell's or anyone who's, who's thought about this for a while, you can say that to people, and that is not going to change their moral intuitions at all. Our moral intuitions are nurtured into us from the time that we're children. Some of it may even be evolutionary. And so as long as you think that your God has all of the same morals you have, you're okay. But the moment you come face to face with the reality that your God has morals, morals that are different from yours, not just different, but uh, repulsive, mm -hmm. you can't change your morals to match that one. I mean, you can try, you can, you can mouth the words, but we don't get our morals from a book. And so it's, it's really that simple. And so the moment that child said, uh, you know, had this reality that what God supports slavery. There's no way anyone can say, well, no, slavery was really okay in that context. No, it's not. It's never okay. It's never going to be okay. If your moral, if your ethical system is that there's nothing wrong with homosexuality and and God calls homosexuality abominable, you're not coming back. It's it's done. If your ethical system says that, uh, you know, there are war crimes, there are lines even in war that you can't cross, and then you read and you say, oh, well, God God did that, there's no coming back. And that's why it's tied to the first point that I made about the Bible. Once you see these things in the Bible, what a Christian has, what another Christian has to do is convince you that you just can't read. There's something wrong with your reading comprehension. No, it really doesn't say the thing that you know that it says. But you know it says it. You read it. You you can't unsee it. And you know it's immoral. And you can't, it will never not be immoral for you. And so those are kind of the lines that once crossed. It doesn't matter whether it's one ethical issue or a thousand like it is with me. Once you get there and you see that this God has crossed this ethical line, you're just not psychologically capable of changing your ethics to match something that you thought was monstrous. That's why it can't come back. But maybe if there's time at the end, I will give the Christians some hope and give a, a type of person who leaves, who could be redeemed. There, There is a type of person who does come back. I don't think that's discussed here in this video at all. I don't think it's uh, discussed much in Christian circles. Um, and so uh, if it sounds like I'm saying 
no one can ever come back after walking away. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that if your objection is biblical and ethical, it's probably not going to happen. But there are other objections where it can. Thank you, David. Uh, Andrew, anything to add? Uh, not to that, but I want to back up about uh, a minute and 30 seconds from uh, what David had to say. And I want to talk about this idea of common path just for a second. So John said that, that part of this common path um, had to do with fundamentalists, right? If the, if the faith was too rigid, if they focused too much on things that were actually non-essential and made them essential, uh, if they were anti-intellectual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These are people that often leave the faith, the Christian faith. I want to just put a pin in this part of the map because in a couple of minutes, we are going to get to liberal Christianity in this very video. And it is at that point that I have a set of questions for the listeners. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Yes, we are going to move on subject. We go through a few rapid changes of subject, hopefully, in the next uh, 10 minutes of video. And there's some interesting points uh, coming up. So stay with us, folks. But people do return. And people do come back at all different kinds of points along the road. Did your study reveal any sense of a correlation or a greater number of people who left their faith from a more fundamentalist background? Because in my experience and research, I consistently find that, but I haven't done the objective data that you did. Is that is there a correlation or connection there? Oh, yeah. I think it's one of the reasons why so many people who leave their faith speak of, of being set free. I think that there is, you know, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You know, take my yoke upon you for it's easy and you'll find rest for your souls. And so many of the people who have left uh, the faith for whatever reason, describe a, a background that was far from being restful or light. In fact, it was very burdensome. It was cumbersome. It was like a millstone around their neck because there were so many rules and regulations that they had to follow. For I mean, I came out of a background somewhat similar to this. So my, my grandmother, who's a, probably the greatest influence in my life for, for the Lord, wow. um, was a wonderful woman uh, with about a fifth grade education. So very simple, but a great faith. And and I grew up thinking that, you know, you should never dance, that you should never, ever go to a movie theater, never play cards, never have anything to do with alcohol, never, never be around people who smoke cigarettes. All of these things were worldly activities. And there were all kinds of rules that she felt like she needed to follow. And um, this is very similar to the people who come out of uh, who, who identify as as former Christians, a good number of them, I would say the majority of them that I've spoken with wow. or stories okay. I've read come from these kinds of backgrounds. I'd like to affirm that it's certainly what I observe that the majority of people that come out and I'm going to hesitate a little bit there because I do know many who just drift away out of less fundamental Christianity. I think there's a key difference in the in the data here in that those who tend to come out of fundamentalist religion 
tend to be far more vocal about it because of the impact that it had on them. Those who drift away rather than have a deconversion expression, they tend to be about it and they just walk away and they carry on with their life and they don't get shouty about it the way we do. So you never hear about those. So the numbers in reality are probably not as highly biased towards fundamental Christianity as the data might show because of those silent uh, non, non-fundamentalist people. But I think even when you take those into account, I think it is still much higher amongst those who come from fundamentalist Christianity. Do you guys uh, have any thoughts on that? Do you agree with me? Uh, yeah, I, I think the whole thing about fundamentalism is is true. But I think that part of the reason from my very first comment, you just realize at some point, oh, that's dumb. Because the more fundamentalist you are, the more things where that you are believing in that just don't make any sense. And um, they they make just it's kind of like King James onlyism, for instance, uh, which is one of of those things that only very fundamentalist people believe. But at some point you you don't even you don't need any deep thinking or books or academics to realize, wait a minute, that's dumb. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And so I think there are more of those things that you run into when you're uh, very fundamentalist. And so it's very hard to once again, once once that first domino falls, mm-hmm. then you start looking at everything else and you start wondering, yeah, what else is dumb? Whereas if you grow up more liberal, there are fewer things that seem to be, you know, just dumb on the surface. And so I think that you don't come out of liberal Christianity maybe as easily as you do fundamentalist Christianity. Yes, that's true. And I think I'd like to make a bigger point on there and say that fundamentalist Christianity is far more cult-like. And it's fundamentalist cultism versus liberal Christianity. Because the fundamentalist will say that the liberal Christian isn't a real Christian. The fundamentalist will say that Catholics are not a real Christian. People that we've had on this podcast, Steve Chalk, almost two years ago now, People say that he's not a real Christian because he's so compassionate and he he is gay affirming and he actually tries to live out his faith as by being an actual decent human being. I remember seeing on Twitter the other week, someone said that he'd been through Steve Chalk's Twitter feed and found that there were exactly zero mentions of Jesus or the Holy Spirit in the last 12 months of Steve tweets. You know, and use that as a way of challenging uh, Steve's Christianity. So I just couldn't resist it. I went to respond and I said, yeah, and yet Steve is the one who's acting more like Jesus. But anyway, that, that's me being petty aside. But I think this is what fundamental means. And I want to suggest that it's the cultish, the cultist attitudes of fundamentalism that actually pushes people away rather than the Christianity itself. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I uh, I agree. <laughs> I was trying to manufacture a bit of disagreement there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sir. We we had our moment of disagreement. We, 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 we've had it. So, but the other thing that intrigues me about fundamentalists, because let's just say that everybody accepts that people leave fundamentalism more than liberal Christianity. Why are fundamentalists so afraid of liberal Christianity. They don't want their people becoming more liberal. They don't want their Christians becoming more progressive. Uh, I was listening to a fundamentalist Christian podcast only the other week, 
and they were, there was, I can't remember what the subject was, but they actually described uh, progressive Christianity as toxic. Yeah, which I, I generally I'd made my mouth drop open. I'd love to hear what Andrew has to say about this, but I can tell you from my perspective as as a Christian, having been a preacher in that atmosphere, atheists are not the enemy. I mean, as as an atheist, uh, and if you're an atheist, you might think that, you know, you're public enemy number one for Christians. Christians don't think about you at all. <laughs> you you seldom come up in their thought processes. Uh, they're not engaging with you except, you know, on discussion boards, the Internet. The real enemy for the fundamentalist Christian is the the progressive Christian, because as an as an atheist, why we're the enemy of all Christians. If anything, we bring Christians together. But the fundam the uh, the progressive Christian is still a Christian, and so if you're talking about a threat that they have to take seriously. It's that because it's it's another Christian saying those guys over there are crazy. If an atheist says those guys over over there are crazy, no one cares because we're atheists. We're we're gonna burn in hell anyway. <laughs> if a Christian says it, it does matter. And so that's that's really where the war is. You know, I know that I didn't spend any time trying to convince people not to become an atheist. I spent time trying to convince people not to become liberal. So that's that's the real war, just just as it is in politics. So it is in religion. I wonder, we practice a brand of conservative Christianity in the United States that is not practiced in the UK. And because we practice a brand of conservative Christianity that is not practiced in the UK, uh, it, it roughly means something like the the people that are liberal here in the United States would be on the more conservative end of traditional churches in the United Kingdom and in, and in Europe in general, I think. And yet people are leaving church in the United Kingdom and throughout Europe, just like they are the United States. And so this this idea that it's the conservative church that's losing its people uh, may be true. But it's not the same kind of conservative in every case. Um, there are sects of Christianity. Back when we did the Alpha course, I think I mentioned this this lady. She practices a brand of Christianity. Uh, she was from somewhere in Africa. And voodoo was actually mixed, or, or rituals that were somewhat voodoo-like, uh, were mixed in with her Christianity. But I have no idea whether her Christianity was liberal or conservative for her region and whether they were gaining or losing people. So I'm not actually sure how to slice this cake and talk about liberal and conservative in a sense of a broader trend that that transcends our various societies in the Western world and beyond. Interesting thought. I think, yeah, it's true. We have the Church of England here and they're usually they are typically very liberal. And yes, it's true. They're, they're hemorrhaging people. It could be that what John's reporting is American centric and that he hasn't uh, taken into account European Christianity. And we've got a much higher percentage of liberal Christians here in the UK and the rest of Europe. And because we've got a much higher percentage 
the numbers leaving will probably look equal. But I bet you that if you did it as a percentage, the percentage of fundamentals that are leaving is higher than the percentage of liberals that are leaving. It's just that the source pools are so different in size, it's hard to see. It seems like we've talked about this. You don't seem to have the kind of fundamentalists that we do. Or we, we do, but they're, yeah, they're in much, much smaller numbers. Right. Uh, so, so they they don't have the the impact that uh, that your fundamentalists do over your side of the pond. Right. And so, your conservative church is far left, maybe not far left. It is at least left of where our conservative church is. And yet, I'm guessing yeah. your conservative churches are losing members by the bucketful, just like our fundamentalist churches. Yes, I would imagine so. I'm not sure they're as left as yours are, as you might think. It's just that they're wrapped up in typical British characteristics, which are are more polite to start with. So I I think um, the the, the far right uh, person with uh, viewpoints that you completely disagree with holding a cup of tea is probably more approachable than the same person holding a gun and a pint of beer. Yeah, okay, I get that. But I mean, I've still had conversations with Christians here in the UK who are people who I who are like, you know, and would happily spend time with and certainly aren't afraid of, but they still hold the very strong view that not only is abortion morally wrong, but it, we should make it illegal in this country. Uh, for example, just to, to pick one out. So that would align with your conservative Christians over there, yeah, except you'd probably be far less comfortable sitting down with those people. Yeah, I um, rather than trying to pull this apart further, I'll put some thought into it, but I want to come back to this idea um, that it's fundamentalism that is losing more Christians, and it's because it's some sort of more hateful version of Christianity. I think there's another explanation. When we get down to liberal Christianity in, uh, what, maybe 15 minutes, if I'm looking at the timer right, I'll say some more about that. But you guys are losing church members like we are, and you're not as far right as we are, uh, as far as I understand. Yes, yes, that is true. And I think what that means is in basics is it's not only about what the Christianity is. It goes back to the other thing earlier. It's the information that we have access to. People are Americans and British and the other and the rest of our European cousins and other parts of the world have all got access to the same information on the Internet. And it's all leading them to the same conclusion that regardless of what brand of Christianity they believe in, they're allowed to question it. And many, many of them are coming to the conclusion that not only are they allowed to question it, but they are allowed to not believe it. Now they're finding themselves in a situation where they can't believe it. And I think that's affecting all brands of Christianity, but it's clearly affecting the, the more fundamentalist ones more, probably because of the packaging that they're in. But it, yeah, it's obviously affecting all brands of Christianity because everybody has access to the same information regardless of what they believe. Right. David, do you want one more bite of that apple? There was a lot to sort of untangle there. 
Yeah, I, I think I'm just going to have to say that I'll have to think about it more deeply. But I'm not actually convinced. The more that I've done the podcasting thing and read the books and listened to uh, podcasts from uh, you know people from other parts of the world, I'm not sure the Brits are more liberal than we are. I'm not sure that they aren't as conservative because I mean you listen you listen to the, the British Christians talk and they may not be waving a gun around and they may be they may not be anti-vaxxers but when it comes right down to it they still believe most of the same kind of fundamentalist ideas underneath as our fundamentalists believe and they get just as mad over the same types of issues i mean you can talk gay cakes on either side of the pond and you'll you'll bring out the same kind of feelings. And so I kind of think that in America, we're conserve we're conservative and proud. And in the UK, they're conservative, but they pretend to not be as conservative. <laughs> but they really are. <laughs> they just they are. I've just listened to too much EU Christianity and read too much EU Christianity. It just feels mostly the same when it comes right down to it. Yeah, that's interesting. It doesn't to me. We shared some guests. Uh, Dave Peck, notable among them. Right. This is a guy who still believes that his his seven or eight year old is going to go to hell, you know, if they don't repent. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing that we would normally say. This is American cookery. Surely they wouldn't believe that. And yes, they do. <laughs> so, it's a that so. That's actually interesting because uh, I'm not saying that there is no fundamentalism shared. What I am saying is I doubt very seriously that Dave Pegg would get terribly concerned over order of worship or uh, sprinkling versus immersion or, or whether either of them were actually essential to salvation. And yet he is a UK conservative. And I think that does place him left of the US conservatives. Okay, yeah, that's a fair point. But I'd like to pick up on what David said about British Christians. I think I can explain that in that many, many of our liberal Christians here in the UK simply don't see the point in advertising and expressing their Christianity on social media. They see it as a personal faith. So the British Christians that you see on social media are the fundamental ones. So again, they're disproportionately represented on social media. So they will artificially skew your impression of what British Christianity looks like because the noisy ones are the ones that they most to the right. That makes sense. I, I accept that. <laughs> and I, I only talk to the noisy ones and I only read the noisy ones. Yes. Well, so. <laughs> well, yes. And I, I've been asked by some of the aforementioned liberal Christians, why do you do what you do? Why are you so vocal? Why are you so anti-Christian? Can't you just go quietly? And my response is, I can't go quietly because there's Christians on the internet who are not quiet and people like you are not doing anything about it. So I am. If you as the liberal Christian kept your fundamental Christians in check, I wouldn't need to do what I need to do. And so that's my answer to that challenge. Hmm. So there may be a difference between fundamental 
and fundamental evangelical. Potentially. But I'm not going to let you go there. You talk a lot about the different relationships that people who leave their faith experience suffering in. But the one that makes sense, but it surprised me I read it, is you said it's typically the mother who has the hardest time with this. Talk about what you found and why you think maybe that's the case. Just quickly before John goes into his answer, I don't want to hang around here for too long because there's other more interesting stuff to talk about. But it, this does talk to me a little bit because I didn't tell my mother that I'd lost my faith, but I have told my father. And I had a closer relationship with my mother than, than with my father. Just It just worked out that way. Part of the fallout of divorce, I did have a bit of a stormy relationship with my father during my teenage years. It, the, these things happen and all of that comes into this. I knew my mother would be upset. Whether or not she would have a harder time, that's... I, I don't know if, if that is true, but certainly from a son's perspective, I was less bothered about my dad being upset by my re- revelation than I was about my mum being upset by my revelation. So that, to, that speaks more to how I viewed my relationship with my mother compared to how I viewed my relationship to my father. That sort of relationship thing is going to come up later. But my mum already knew that both my brothers were effectively no longer Christians and she coped with that okay. I just didn't want to add that to to her. So my mum was still a strong Christian right up uh, to her death. And I just, while I was visiting her and loving her while she was fading away due to cancer in front of my eyes, it's just something that I didn't want to bother her with because I couldn't be bothered to have that conversation with her. Not because I didn't love her or didn't care for her. Sorry. Couldn't be bothered is absolutely the wrong word to use in that. I cared about her deeply and I cared about not hurting her, which is why I held it back from her. It was something else. Um, but yeah, okay. I had a good relationship with my mother. I had a strong relationship with my, my mother. I had a very loving relationship with my mother. And that was not a conversation I wanted to have with her. If it, if it helps, every poll I've ever seen suggests that women are more religious than men. And this might explain why women would have a harder time with it because it actually means more to them. Yes, and I'm sure that that's true. What you're about to hear as part of John's answer is is some kind of speculation uh, about the the emotional capacity while women are pregnant. I think that's a very misogynistic uh, answer. I didn't like hearing that answer. I thought only a man and, and only an evangelical Christian man could come out with that as an answer because I think of all the possibilities here, that is the one that's the bottom of the list, frankly. Unadulterated sexism. That's the next three minutes. That's the next three minutes. Enjoy it, people. Nowhere else will you find this juice. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think about what, well, what I found was, yes, mothers are the, are the ones that have the, the hardest time. Mm. And I, I'm not exactly sure why, other than I think that perhaps there's something more nurturing in mothers that carry the, you know, the child for, for nine months. Between my wife and I, um, my wife wrestles with concerns and worries about our children that that I don't necessarily have. She worries about spiritual things for our kids that that I don't worry so so much about. And um, I, I just think that perhaps there's more of a, a compassionate, nurturing aspect to, that women in general have. Uh, towards kids than, than perhaps maybe some of the dads do. And and uh, it shows up in, in the stories of mothers who are just crushed because their kids have left the faith and they often are the ones who will do the most work 
to try and get their kids to come back to the faith. I was going through a questioning period and I told my mom, she's just like about lost it. And my dad was like, son, seek after truth. You're going to be okay. And some of that is personality. But when I read that, I was like, oh, that's bigger than just my experience. It's not yeah. universal, but there's a commonality here. Now, one of the other ones we just talk about is friends. And this line you wrote, like it just gave me pause and it really broke my heart because this is an area I thought that we as Christians are totally falling short. You said in terms of deconverts and their former friends who are Christians, these relationships are broken. You said, quote, in all cases, it was the Christians who ended the relationship. Talk about what you found, what, what that means. Uh, they, there's a sense of betrayal that they feel. I mean, this is the thing that it, that is the most important in their life. It's the thing that, you know, connected them with their friend that they had in common, that they had maybe shared experiences with, went to church with, went to Bible camps with. And now that person is saying, I don't think that any of this is true. And actually what you believe, I think, is maybe harmful or I think that you really need to think about it further, depending on how someone who's who leaves the faith kind of comes out and identifies they can come out in a way that is kind of aggressive and and then and challenging and for the most part i think that we feel as christians a sense of we're just been betrayed like this person uh was once on our side now they're gone and they're on the other team and what are we having in common with them anymore because what we always used to do was go to youth group together or go to the college Christian group together. We went to church together. We did missions trips, et cetera. And, and now they don't believe anything that I believe anymore. And I'm not sure what I have in common with them or how I can even hang around with them because they're, they've, they've almost been like a sort of a Benedict Arnold. They're, they're identifying with the other side now. And it, it is, yeah, it is the, it is the Christians who, who really feel this way. And, and often the people who have left the faith will say things like, well, look, I, I haven't really changed all that much. I'm still the same person. I just don't mentally affirm the same things that you mentally affirm and that I once did. But, but I haven't really changed all that much. But inevitably, over time, there is a significant change that, that does take place in pe people who, who leave the faith. And they will have uh, different values. They will adopt uh, different communities that they will adopt. They will become more liberal in their politics uh, and on social issues. And, and that will have something to do with it as well. But initially, the initial reaction is a knee-jerk reaction from us as believers because we feel a sense of betrayal. This should be a big red flag to any Christians who are listening. The last two minutes, this encapsulates the toxicity of fundamentalist Christianity more perfectly than I could say in any of the podcasts that we've had. And if the only part of this episode or the video that we're playing here that you listen to is the last two minutes, this is the most important, the most critical bit. Somebody changed. Somebody said they couldn't hold our beliefs anymore. And how do we respond? We respond like they've betrayed us. There is no love in that reaction. It is complete and utter rejection. This is how manipulators behave. This is how toxicity thrives. This is why, this is how all sorts of people run away from their relationships because they're being manipulated and controlled by their spouses. This is everything that we package up in society as bad behavior. And Christians are doing it to people that they cared about and loved about all the time, simply because they open their mouths and admit that they can't believe the same thing anymore. 
Just one thought to add to that. John said the Christians view skeptics who were once Christians and walked away as Benedict Arnold's. You're going to have to explain that to me. This British person doesn't get that reference. Benedict Arnold was a a famous turncoat in in U.S. history. So when someone says you're a Benedict Arnold, what they're saying is you you once were uh, a good friend and ally, someone I could depend on, someone uh, that I would have trusted my deepest secrets and maybe my life to. And now you've changed. You uh, are no longer someone that uh, that I can trust. And in fact, you are treasonous. And you may be worthy of death. That is the world story. Yeah. Now, toxicity at its worst. Oh, yes. Here's what I think is wrong with what John said. It's not as if Christians think this only of skeptics who used to be Christians. It's not as if Christians are friends with atheists who were never Christians to begin with. Darren Lute is not being invited out to dinner by droves of Christians because he was never a Christian, uh, because he was he was never a Christian and didn't uh, suddenly become a turncoat. There's a lie in this idea that it's just the, the skeptics who were once Christians and now we see them as turncoats and, and that's why we have this mental barrier to carrying on with them. No, 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 no. Christians aren't friends with non-Christians. That's the toxicity. It's not that somebody was once a Christian and walked away. Christians are not friends with non-Christians. And I challenge you to find a group of Christians who maintain relationships with people who are non-Christian that were never Christians, and but you know don't have uh, relationships with people who were former Christians. It's just not just not the case. It is true that Christians are pretty much the ones that break off those relationships. And the atheist would be willing, the the newly non-believing person would be willing to maintain the relationships. And there's a reason, I think, uh, you know, in addition to what Andrew said, which I agree with, but part of the reason is, as a non-believer, if I maintain my relationship with you as a Christian, there's no sense in which I'm hanging around a dangerous person or that you pose some kind of threat to my thinking or something like that. However, for you as a Christian, I now pose a threat to you. You could be infected with my thinking and you've been taught not to listen to people like me and not to hang around with people like me. The Bible has some things to say about not having uh, communications uh, or, or that's that's not the word that's used. Uh, conversation, the word used either. Um, Fellowship, is that the word? Yeah, it's, it's, it's this idea that you're not supposed to have tie and relationship with people who are unbelievers. It's we do represent a kind of a threat, because if we talk about these things, you talk about your faith to me and I talk about my faithlessness to you. Your faith is not a threat to me, but my faithlessness is a threat to you. And so I think that that is a part of why Christians start to get that cold chill. And even if they don't want to necessarily break off the relationship, 
you now have become a dangerous person to them as if you just developed COVID. So yeah, they have a they have now a reason not to have a close relationship with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Still Unbelievable. We went long on this review, and so we have split our conversation into two parts. You won't have to wait long though, as the next episode will be part two, where we conclude our review.